Well, today we're going to look at a, a verse that everyone knows. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church or you never heard a sermon in your entire life. Everyone knows this verse. Judge not or you will be judged. People love this verse like people love Rick Moranis. Like who doesn't like Rick Moranis, right? What is, what is one unlikable thing about Rick Moranis? Nothing. You won't be able to come up with anything. He is lovable just like this verse. Everyone, no matter what you believe about Jesus, loves to quote this verse. People may say their favorite verse is John 3.16 or Jeremiah 29.11, but everyone's real favorite verse is Matthew 7.1. How many times have you heard or how many times have you said, who gave you the right to judge me? Judge not or you will be judged. I think it's great that, that everyone knows and loves this verse. But the problem is, I think we love it because we make it mean something that Jesus never meant it to mean. We live in a time and a culture where there is no objective or transcendent truth, where everyone can claim fake news or alternative facts or their own personal version of truth. There is no standard by which judgment can occur. Richard Rorty says that truth is what our peers let us get away with. See, we live in a culture whose life's verse is judge not. But we don't live in a culture that looks like the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says judge not, he can't mean that he never wanted anyone to disapprove of anything, that everything, anything goes. Like the old Cole Porter song, which says in olden days, a glimpse of stalking was looked on as something shocking. But now God knows anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words now only use four letter words writing prose. Anything goes. That can't be the result of Jesus's teaching on judgment. And yet it's the logical progression of how we often think of that verse. Judge not or you will be judged. So Jesus can't be saying there's no standard, that there's no place for evaluation and judgments to be made, that truth can be whatever your truth is. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. There is truth. Jesus is truth. And actually, we started off this year looking at that statement that Jesus made. So there is truth. If we want to understand Jesus, rather than using his words for our own purposes, we have to interpret Jesus's words in light of all the other things he said. So Jesus, at another time, endorses judgment. In the Gospel of John, in John 7, 24, he says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So in Matthew 7, he says, judge not. And then he says, judge with right judgment in John 7. And not only that, in the same Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses down, what we're going to look at in just a couple weeks, Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus is instructing us to discern, to judge who is a false prophet and who is a true one. Later in Matthew, Jesus says, if someone sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen, you have won them over. In order to do this, you have to determine or judge that someone has indeed sinned against you. And then Jesus is saying you have to judge whether or not they listen to you. 
In the Old Testament, God appointed judges over Israel to protect his people. He gave the people judges to settle disputes and enforce the law. He also established rules so that they could be judged properly. In Leviticus 19.15, everyone's favorite book of the Bible, God says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So people have always been instructed by God to judge, but to judge properly. To be a responsible adult every day, we make judgments. Every time I correct one of my kids, whenever a teacher grades a test, when you go to the polls and vote, you are making a judgment. These forms of assessment and judgment are inescapable. So do we really think Jesus simply means there's to be no judgment of any kind if you were to follow him? To be a part of ushering in the kingdom, rid yourself of all judgments. Of course not. Judge not prohibits certain kinds of judgment, but not all. People have always been instructed by God to judge, but to judge properly. And so with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus actually says. Our text for today is Matthew 7. We're going to start reading in the first verse. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is God's word. It's interesting to me that judge not comes after Jesus has just given a rather long list of moral instructions. I mean, the entire Sermon on the Mount, as we've been going through it, we've heard Jesus say, you've heard it said about, about lust or about adultery, this. But then he goes on and expounds and says, these are all the ways in which you could commit adultery. And it begins with lust. We hear him talk about murder and how murder actually, and it also includes hate. We hear him talk about how we should live in according to marriage and divorce, according to pray, how we should fast and how, what we should do with our worry. So this sermon gives us a pretty extensive rule book for how we are to live. It's like Jesus knew he gave the gift that keeps on giving to the self-righteously unself-aware. He knew that these words that he was speaking to his people were words that brought life, but they're also words that could cause tremendous harm. And many of us have experienced the harm when these words are used wrongly. So before going any further, after Jesus has just unpacked all these rules, all these ways in which you and I were designed to live, he stops and he warns those listening to him not to use anything he's just taught them to condemn. Jesus does not forbid evaluation of others, but he does forbid the condemnation of others. Sometimes it is legitimate, even mandatory, to exercise judgment, and sometimes we are to refrain. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on this passage, said, Great King, how much wisdom thy precepts require. 
I need thee not only to open my mouth, but also at times to keep it shut. See, Jesus is talking to these followers and he's just painted this picture of how they are to live. And and then he's saying to them, "There there are things that you can say that are good or bad, right or wrong, based on my word, based on this sermon. But he's making it clear where the line is. We cannot say to someone, you are condemned by God. Do you know when young people are asked to describe Christians, one of the number one responses they've given over the last several years, anti-gay, that Christians hate gay people. This should break the heart of every follower of Jesus. If someone who is part of the LGBT community comes to our church and they want to meet with me, I know one of the very first questions they're going to ask me is, am I going to be sent to hell because I'm gay? And my response is, no one has ever been sent to hell for being gay. The only thing that sends people to hell is unbelief in the saving work of Jesus. See, Jesus knew for the self-righteously unself-aware, his Sermon on the Mount, all of his moral teachings would be used to condemn, not to invite See, the, the, the intention behind telling us how we should live was to invite us into what we were made for, to invite us into more, not to condemn. So he stops here before he ends the sermon and he looks at him and he says, okay, I've just given you a bunch to think about. Do not judge. He says, judge not. But then he kind of tells us how to judge. He tells us not to judge, but then he shows us how to judge. Look at verses one and two again. Do not judge or you will too be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. When you're being judged, what is the measure you want to be used in judging you? With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When you are being judged, what is the measure you want used in the judging of you? Don't you want your whole story to be taken into consideration? When we make judgments about people, we never know the whole story. In fact, let's say we catch someone in their sin. We have no idea how long they have resisted the temptation before finally giving over to it. We have no idea the prayers for relief that they had prayed. We have no idea the tears that they had shed prior toward their fall. We had no idea how badly they tried to be obedient. Or maybe even what would be considered blatant disobedience in our life for someone else whose struggle is far more intense It is actually a first step towards obedience, towards following Jesus. Think about that for a second. Disobedience in your life might look look like a first step towards obedience in someone else's life. With the measure you use, Jesus says, it will be measured to you. Hillel, the famous rabbi said, do not judge a man until you yourself have come into his circumstances or situation. No one knows the strength of another person's temptations. Person brought up in a loving, secure Christian home doesn't know the temptations of those who grow up in an environment ruled by evil where every man had to be for himself. 
The person brought up with parents who wanted what was best for them, sacrificed so that they could be all that they needed to be, doesn't know the temptation of those who carry the burden of a difficult upbringing with abusive or absent parents. The person who doesn't have an addictive personality doesn't know the temptation of someone who tries something one time at a party and then can't quit. The person who comes to know Jesus later in life can't know the temptation of those who felt their whole life because of their Christian family, they had the pressure of being good all the time. The truth is, if we knew what some people have to go through, if we knew the whole story we wouldn't be condemning them. We'd be amazed at how good they are. What Jesus has done here in laying out this Sermon on the Mount, he's laid out something to invite us to, not to condemn us with. Like Atticus Finch says, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. So with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So when you are being judged, what is the measure you want to be used in judging you? You want your whole story to be taken into consideration. So Jesus says, don't judge. And then he shows us how to judge by taking the whole story into consideration. And then he tells us whom we are to judge. Verses three through five. Let's look at that again. What do you... Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is saying here, if you address a sin in someone else without first repenting, you're addressing the wrong sin. If you and I, if, if we address a sin in someone else's life without first repenting ourselves, we're addressing the wrong sin. I had a guy come up to me um, last week after the sermon, um, and he told me that he and his wife had just separated, and his wife had told him uh, that she was in love with another man. Uh, but he came up to tell me that it hit him that he realized that he had been emotionally unavailable to her for a long time. Now, was, was his sin something that could justify her breaking her vow she made before God to, to love her husband? Absolutely not. But he was looking at the plank. If you address a sin in someone else without first repenting, you're addressing the wrong sin. Spurgeon says, surely if I know myself, I need not send my judgment upon circuit to try other men, for I can give it full occupation in my own court of conscience to try the traitors within my own heart. So when Jesus says we have a plank and someone else has a speck, he's actually making a pretty ridiculous comparison. See, a plank was a load-bearing beam. Jesus is saying we have sin in our hearts strong enough to hold up an entire structure. And they have sin you can barely see. 
Now, is Jesus speaking specifically to someone when he says you have a plank in your eye? Yes. You. He's speaking specifically to you. You are the one with the plank. Specifically, you. They are the one with the speck. You, plank, them, speck. You and me, plank, them, speck. Now you might think, wait, wait a minute. You just, you have no idea what they did. Jesus says, you plank, them, speck. What's Jesus doing here? He's inviting us to the kind of generosity that can only come from seeing ourselves as the chief of sinners. When the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, Late in Paul's life, after following Jesus for a long time, after planting uh, many churches, after suffering and being persecuted for the faith, Paul writes these words. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's 1 Timothy 1.15. My guess is Paul was more obedient and holy than any of us. I bet when he wrote these words, his life, uh, in his life, it was, it was more obedient and holy than it was earlier in his life. But you see, Paul was no longer self-righteously unself-aware. He knew what he was capable of. He knew in his heart he had enough sin to support an entire structure. He could say with great resolve, but for the grace of God, go I. Can you say that? Every time you see sin in someone else's life, can you say with great resolve, but for God's grace, go I. Spurgeon says the human heart is like an acorn. He says, if you look at an acorn, what do you see in an acorn? When you look into an acorn, you see an ocean of trees. He says, first of all, 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 all inside the acorn is a tree, a huge tree. And every single bit of that tree is contained. It's scrunched into that tiny acorn. In other words, there's not one thing that that huge tree will ever be that isn't contained in that tiny acorn. And he said, not only that, but, but on that tree, there are thousands of other acorns. And each acorn is another tree, which means inside that acorn is trees upon trees upon trees that have acorns on them so that ultimately there's thousands of other trees contained within one tiny acorn. He says one acorn has the power to cover the entire world with an ocean of trees. That's how much power is in an acorn. But if the acorn falls on the pavement... Within a couple of days, it rots. All of its power goes to nothing. It doesn't mean that the power's not there. To see the power, to understand the power of an acorn, it actually has to fall into soil. It has to get watered. It has to land in just the right circumstances. So after saying this, Spurgeon would look at his congregation and say, what do you think murder is? What do you think it starts with? Murder has to start with a thought. I wish this person weren't here, or I don't like this person, or this person is getting in the way of something that I want. 
It starts with a grudge. It starts with selfishness. It starts with pride. It starts with self-centeredness. What do you think that is? He says, like an acorn, in your heart, there is an ocean of evil. And if you just happen by God's grace to have fallen on the pavement, if you happen by God's grace not to be in a situation where that evil is cultivated and being fertilized, you can't see how much evil is in there. If you can't see that, it doesn't mean that it's not there. Paul never doubted what he was capable of given the right circumstances. And so that led Paul to move towards brokenness with generosity. Jesus' teaching about judgment here, I believe, is to make us people who move towards brokenness and generosity. He paints a picture of what it looks like uh, to, to live into the kingdom. He paints a picture of what God had in mind when he thought you and I up. But then he tells us, be careful, judge not. Be people who move towards brokenness with such humility and generosity because that's how the kingdom gets built. A gospel of condemnation and exclusion is not good news. And yet the bad news of sin and evil and injustice and brokenness is a part of the gospel. So what do we do? How, how, how do we tell the bad news? I think... We're called to tell the truth about ourselves. We've all heard it said, love the sinner, hate the sin. Some have altered the statement to say, love the sinner, hate your sin. But what if we said, love the sinner, tell your sin? What if that's how you and I lived into the kingdom? We loved the sinner and we told our sin. Not too long ago, uh, someone I love very much told me I was judgmental. And it really upset me because I'm the grace guy. I'm not judgmental. Like I pride myself on being not judgmental. Um, and so after she told me this, um, I, I started getting really angry. And, and I, the more I thought about it, the more upset I got because this person I love is, is living a pretty blatantly sinful life. So then I just started to think about how guilty she must feel. And so she's transferring all her guilt onto me uh, and turning me into this judgmental one. And you know what? She might feel guilty. And she might be blame shifting to avoid dealing with that guilt. But will me making that judgment call invite her into the gospel or will it push her further away? Is that moving towards her brokenness with generosity? Maybe the most convicting thing I could do is tell her my sin. Show her my need for the gospel. Love the sinner, tell your sin. I once heard a pastor say, people can't be told they're sinners, they have to be shown. But maybe people need to see that we are sinners. People need to know that we need the gospel to be true. Parents, one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is to show them that you need the gospel. Husbands and wives, one of the greatest gifts you can give to your spouse is to show them that you need the gospel. Your coworkers or your neighbors who look at you and think you're so perfect and you're so goody-goody and that's why you show up at church, 
They need to know that you need the gospel to be true. We say this a lot here. Your story told truthfully is good news for others. I think as Jesus is concluding, getting close to the end of this sermon, he wants to make sure that even as we pursue holiness, even as we pursue to be people who are about kingdom things, that we don't forget that we are called first and foremost to invite people in. Who needs you to tell them the good news? That you are a sinner saved by grace and grace alone. Love the sinner, tell your sin. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you um, that as you instruct us through your word, how to pursue holiness, you invite us uh, to look at other people with love and compassion and grace. That you invite us to be people who move towards brokenness with generosity. And Father, I don't know uh, all the different people that you've put into each of our lives, uh, but you do. And you know what part of our story we can share that is good news to them, which gives them hope, which makes them open to the possibility that they too can experience your unconditional love. They too can be transformed more into the image of Jesus. So Father, make us a people who has a passion for that to happen. Make us people who are so grounded in the beauty of the gospel that we can tell our story truthfully that we can love whoever you bring into our life and we can tell them the truth about ourselves. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.